Please bring the word cloud up. I want to always remind folks that when you come to New Covenant, the goal of the worship service is to meet with God. And how you, you don't meet with a God of your own making. You, may, you meet with the God who has revealed himself. And how do we know God? How do we know what God likes? How do we know uh, those kind of things, those details that, that you know, we, we didn't get uh, just by, uh, by existing? Uh, there are so many things out there. When you read the Ten Commandments, you realize that God's character is, is firm and it's been established. It hasn't changed. It hasn't morphed. He didn't conform to anything going on in the world. Uh, that's why with the word cloud, word cloud, it's a reminder before us each week that what is central to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. And the only place you'll find this special revelation is in the word of God. Uh, God has said that his word is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns between the, the thoughts and intents of the heart. It goes deep. It helps to expose things. Just like when the light shines, the darkness has to flee. And that is why the word of God is so important and so essential. And I pray that you, if you experience new covenant, you'll always be finding that the word of God is open. The word of God is communicated. It is shared. And that the word of God takes you to the cross. It takes you to that place where you can find the one who lo whose love is more precious than even the love of a mother. Today we're going to be looking at a portion of scripture uh, in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 2. It is not in Esther chapter 5, but Esther chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, we're going to be turning to this Old Testament portion. It is a part of the historical books, uh, not the hysterical ones, but the historical ones. Um, when you go to Esther, you'll find that this is the story of God's people uh, who have already experienced some setbacks. Um, Esther is, is a, a narrative, uh, it's actually a glimpse of the story of somebody who lived through this. And uh, if you want, would you want to just switch places with her? You know, there's a lot of things we're going to learn about Esther that are wonderful, but I'm not sure you'd really be that eager to switch. Uh, the situation for Esther was not, was not heavenly. When we go through it, you're going to see some of that. But as we look at the scriptures, the Bible does not hide these things from us. It actually shows us more detail. And this is part of the more of the, uh, shows us the veracity of the text of scripture. Uh, right now, let's read, if you would, with me, chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, and this is about Mordecai, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. This is God's word. This is inerrant, infallible, inspired in the originals, and this is what it says in chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. This is God's word. A lot of times when we look at the book of Esther, we don't really focus on some of these extra little details. Today's message is entitled, What is a Woman? Uh, back in uh, March of 22, that question was raised uh, in Washington, and the amazing thing was not the question. The amazing thing was the answer, or better yet, the lack of an answer. Are we confused? God's people should not be confused because I can tell you God is not confused about what a woman is. Uh, just like God is not confused about what a man is, and I'll be dealing with that on Father's Day, asking the same kind of question, what is a man? 
But uh, when we look at Esther chapter 2, uh, I'm definitely trying to show you what a woman is from the scriptures, from God's perspective. I, I now would like to take you back to chapter 2, look at the, verse, the verses in the chapter leading up to it. So if you join me in reading chapter 2, verse 1, I'll be reading it out loud, you follow along. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with this text, let me just give you a little of the backstory as we read it. Okay, King Ahasuerus. The fact that he's a king tells you a lot. He's in charge. Okay, he's, he's the king in the Persian Empire, and the laws of the Medes and Persians were serious. Uh, once they were established, you could not unestablish them. So you better be careful when, when they make a decree. You can't overrule it. You can't overturn it. It's, it's in place. So the king ends up making the decrees or the laws. And so you don't want to mess with the king or be on the wrong side of the king. Now, we're introduced to another person in that. Her name is Vashti. I had to tell you that she's a she. I know she's a she because she was the queen. She was the queen, in a sense, she was the one who was kind of like the mother for the kingdom if he's the picture of the father of the kingdom. But as you see, um, he, King Ahasuerus, was angry. He was angry. Do anybody, does anybody get angry these days? It's almost like there must be something in the water. You know, you almost have to really take something to counteract what everybody has because they have this dose of anger. King Ahasuerus is angry, and his anger is actually against his wife. If you read here with me, she had done some things, and because she had done some things, there were some consequences. And he's thinking about that at chapter 2, verse 1. So verse 2, he says, Then the king's young men who attended to the king said, Let beautiful young virgins be, virgins be sought out for the king. Yeah, I was going to say virgins almost like different kinds of flavors for the, for the women. He's, he's so upset with his woman, his wife, that now they're looking for replacements for her. Verse 3, And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young girls or young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is to be in charge of the women. Now, I think you're following along. The king is angry at his wife. There's a decree against the wife. She's no longer allowed to come into the king's presence, ever. The king is finally calming down. He's realizing that this isn't a pretty situation. And uh, the people attending the king are trying to make the king happy again. So they come up with some suggestions, some proposals, and the king is listening to them. He has quite a few people around, but they're basically suggesting that he replace Vashti with somebody that is going to be better, nicer, kinder. I don't know if she'll be more beautiful, but she's, she'll at least be nice. She won't buck the system. And uh, so they end up having this whole idea that this guy could help arrange this and they'll go through all the kingdom and they're going to find the best person to fit this situation. And... Uh, it's interesting that uh, verse 4 says, And let the young women, yet the, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And if you look at the end of verse 4, okay, we can do that. You can see how the king is saying, That sounds like the best plan going, make it so. Verse 5. 
Now there was a Jew in Susa. Now, this is interesting. Because they're looking for a queen, it's kind of interesting that in verse 5, we get introduced to a dude. Okay, and there is a Jew in Susa, of Cid, uh, uh, in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish. He was a Benjamite, you know, basically from the same tribe as King Saul, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, I almost want to wish, I don't know if you can picture that uh, timeline uh, that might pop up here behind me that has the flow of time. But uh, this kind of sets the stage for you a little bit. I don't know if you can picture that picture up there, the timeline. But uh, you, you find that, that Mordecai was a young man who lived when Nebuchadnezzar came and took over God's, God's kingdom. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, there it is. Uh, if you look on that, you'll find out all the way down to the exile, right there in the word in the middle next to the, uh, um, there's a gap. And it says to the right side, I don't think I have my, uh, my pointer, but if you look to the right side, it says 586 BC, the fall of Jeru Jerusalem, Judah exiled to Babylon. And uh, that happened in 586 BC. Now, this is what the author of Esther tells us, that Mordecai was there. Now, can you name, this is one of those Jeopardy questions, can you name a few other people that were there? Daniel was there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. So this is kind of interesting. You may not have realized that Mordecai was there and that Mordecai was one of the young men that got taken away. Now, when he was taken away and swept away from Jerusalem and from his hometown, Jeremiah would have been weeping. because He was the lamenting prophet. He wrote Lamentations. Jeremiah must have been crying to watch, no, not another one. The young men of the kingdom being snatched away to be re-indoctrinated in another world, taken off to the University of Babylon. And they were going to be schooled in all the ethics and all the sociology. And they were going to make sure that they identified correctly. They were not going to be Jews anymore. They were going to be ministers of the king. And that's why they ended up getting the new names. And ironically, I still use some of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not the names of, of people from Judah. They were the new names that they were given when they were joining in the new kingdom. The kingdom of Babylon. Now, as I told you in verse 5 here, we're introduced to Mordecai. He's no longer a young man. Time has passed because right now the Babylonian kingdom has already been wiped out. Because if you remember in the statues and the dreams that Daniel gave, you had the head of gold, then you had the, the shoulders, which is going to be the Persian Empire. It was going to be the Medes and the Persians. And right now, we're in the Medes and the Persians. Okay? And the king, uh, Ahasuerus, is also named Xerxes. And he is a potentate. He is a powerful guy. And Mordecai now has grown up into this situation. And that's where we are introduced to him. He is a Benjamite, but he was carried away. He remembers the bad times. Now verse 7 gives you the context. It is this Mordecai, this man who saw the fall of Jerusalem. He was taking care of Hadassah. That's the Hebrew name. He was taking care of this young lady. And he goes on to say that... 
her name really is Esther. That's how everybody knew her in the kingdom there in Persia. She was the daughter of his uncle, uh, the daughter of his uncle, uh, for she had neither father nor mother. And so when you realize that there was a relationship there because of family ties, and uh, there's some interesting sadness or some news that you get from that. Verse 8 goes on to say, So when the king's orders and edicts were proclaimed, and when young women were gathered in Susa to the citadel, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into the, the system. I call it the beauty contest. This is what God's word is revealing to us. Now, as by way of an introduction to our sermon, I ask the question is, uh, when we listen to a story like this about this young woman, uh, are we confused about her? Do you think she was confused about herself? Do you think that she had to be taught what a woman was? Did Mordecai need to be told? It's kind of interesting when you, when you begin to ask this question, as I said, uh, what was puzzling in the last, in the last couple of, of months uh, when people in government are refusing to give an answer, it's really what they're saying. It's not that they're confused, but they do not want to say the things that God has said about women. Right now, it is kind of unpalatable in our culture. Uh, and that's why I, I almost want to say it's not really a biological question. It's more of a theological concern. I think everybody knows. As that one song says in the Superman movie, everybody knows. Okay? But there is a denial of some of these things. And, and I find that the, the denial happens similar to the same pattern that we find uh, theologically, like with Lot. Uh, everybody's heard of Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew. Well, when Lot and Abraham were going to separate, Lot was there, and he was given the choice. What do you want to do, Lot? You've got all these people, all these sheep and all that. And Lot ended up considering, instead of saying, no, I'd like to stay with you, Abraham, he started to consider what, what his options are. And then you can see after considering, he began to accept the fact, well, yeah, that'll be good. Let's try something different. And so he makes a decision for change. And if you look at, at Genesis 17 and 18, you'll find that Lot ended up leaving Abraham and moving towards the greener grass. Have you ever heard of that? The grass is greener somewhere else until you get there. Okay, so he moves to the greener grass, but everybody knows that he didn't stay just in the greener grass. What happened to Lot next? He moved into Sodom. He took his family and he lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived down there, and he ended up becoming one of the leaders in the city. Everybody knew of Lot. He ended up becoming one of the wealthy guys there. And so if you look at the pattern of Lot, uh, he ended up hearing about it. He started considering. Then the next thing you know, he started to compromise and say, sure, that'll be okay. And the next thing you know, he's all in. He's committed. And I believe the confusion is happening today, even in the gender issue, as well as it is as almost every other issue. As we are progressing to use their term, we are moving away from the scriptures and leaning more and more on our own understanding. And as we end up shuffling this or, or discarding the scriptures or treating them as if they're irrelevant, then people now are trying to think of things on their own. They hear of these possibilities. I may be, hmm, I'm not as happy with the situation I'm in. You know, they're breaking the 10th commandment, which is what? Thou shalt not covet thy, thy neighbor's stuff. 
And I might even add, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's gender either. Okay, the whole point of being satisfied with the, what God has provided for you. Uh, if you look here, you find out that they begin to be unsatisfied. That's why they begin to compromise with, well, what can I do about it? And they start watching and looking around, and before long, they commit to it. They step out, or as some folks would say, they come out of the closet. There's a lot of things that are, that are going on, but by way of introduction, I wanted to grab your attention and now take you to the Scripture. It's not really up to you or me to decide what a woman is. Let's look at what God declares to be a woman. The three points of the sermon is, what is a woman? Answered by God the creator. Secondly, what is a woman? Answered by God the decider. And the third is, what is a woman? Answered by God the illustrator. And I want to take you quickly through the scriptures and show you some things that you might not have otherwise known. Although I think if you're in church, these things need to be echoed in our ears so that we just don't have wax that covers us up and we start listening to other voices or the worst thing, if we start leaning on our own thoughts. The scripture says that God is the creator. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, you will quickly find this out. Uh, Genesis is the passage where we, where we learn how God brought things out of nothing, ex nihilo. And chapter 2, uh, there is an explanation for us. And I wanted to go ahead and read a portion of this because when you see it, then you realize that people are not free to just say, oh, well, we evolved this way or uh, it just maybe happened this way. You know, no rhyme or reason. No, there is direction. So if you look at Genesis chapter 2, beginning there in verse 18, you'll find out. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit or suitable for him, compatible with him. Now, who's speaking? Okay, so we're no confusion here. God, the creator God. Well, I mean, we're supposed to be still and know God today. Okay, God is actually declaring some things. He sees this man and he says, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And so he says in verse 18, I, he says, I will make him a suitable helper. Some have interpreted this properly, that man had a tattoo over his forehead and said, needy, that he needs help. Okay, that's probably true for most of us. Um, but, but when we think about this, God ends up providing a helper. Uh, and when you look at verse 18, continues on, uh, verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to that man and, and to see what he would call them. In other words, man is there. We know his name is Adam from the other chapter. So man is there, and God is bringing all these other created living things before him. Everything that moves ends up showing up in front of Adam. And Adam is having fun naming them. Can you imagine where he came up with the word giraffe or elephant or rhinoceros? Uh, but whatever, in, in the, in I believe it was probably Hebrew, there he is speaking and naming all these creatures. If you look at verse 20 now, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a compatible person. Poor Adam. He's lonely. Verse 21. 
So the Lord, that is Yahweh, the creator God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord, had, the Lord God, Yahweh, had taken from man, he made into a woman. Are you confused? If you look at what God has said, God knows what he's doing when he made a woman. He, he made from this rib, he made this person and brought the woman to man. And then, of course, it's kind of humorous in verse 23. Then, uh, then the man said, uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a handmaid, right? No, there's, there's no other neg negative terminology here. It, it's she shall be called woman or woman because she was taken out of man. That's what the word woman means. There is no confusion to be gained here. When you look at, the, at the, this answer, this question that God answers with scripture is that God made a woman. He knew what he was doing. This was not a reactionary thing. He actually determined that this woman would not just be created out of nothing. She's not created ex nihilo like the rest. What do you mean, Pastor? When God said, let there be birds, did he start with some material? No. He just said, let it be, and it happened. When God made man, he, he made him in his own image. You can read about that, and we'll look at the next. In fact, let's go there right now, if we could. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion. Now that is let mankind, let the man and woman have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so verse 27 just declares it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Help me out here. Male and female, he created them. Now, I just have to say, again, there is no confusion with God the creator. If you talk to God the creator, he knows exactly what he's doing. He, is, he has made this thing called woman, not out of nothing, but out of the rib of the man. Do you think that he had a purpose for that? Maybe he was watching CNN or a TikTok video and, and he got the idea. Wouldn't it be cool if he pulled a rib out of one? No, you can't blame this on anybody else. God, out of his infinite wisdom, already purposed that he was going to make a woman, a, a help me, somebody that would be compatible with man, that would be able to stand beside him, that, he would that she would come out of him so that they would be considered mankind and not as two separate entities. Pretty interesting when you realize that God had purpose to make male and female after his own image. And I believe that this is what he's saying is that he's given men and women the will, the freedom, the volition. Now, of course, we know that man's will is tainted. Women's will is tainted as well since the fall. And we'll explain that in just a few moments. But the answer to this question from Genesis chapter uh, 2 and from chapter 1 is sum up, summed up in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, it couldn't be better. It couldn't be better. Today, when you find people that are confused, if you can introduce them to, to the creator, 
if you can show them what the scriptures actually say, there doesn't need to be any more confusion linger on. Now, let me take you to the second point, which is what is a woman answered by God the decider? Now, when I look here, there are several scriptures, but I wanted to start with the Jeremiah 29, 11, maybe because it's my son's favorite verse. But when you look at Jeremiah 29, 11, God is dealing with the people that are in exile, the same kind of community that Esther is in. And what does he say to Esther? You got a raunchy life. Sorry, you got, a, you got the small straw. No, if you look at the text, you're going to say, I have plans for you. Same, the same Lord God that made everything. God says, I have some uh, plans. I have a, uh, in, in theology, we call it providence. Uh, it's the theolo theological will of God. He holds all things together by him. All things consist, Colossians chapter 3. But when you realize in Jeremiah 29, God is not just saying, well, um, it might. Oh, well, we'll see. God is not at the mercy of those things. I call him God the decider. God actually has an agenda. If you go to Romans 12, which we've been preaching on, if you look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I beg of you, brothers and sisters, by God's mercy, that you would present yourselves to be uh, falling in line with the creator God, with the one who made you. And then he says, don't be like the world, but be, be transformed. Be like the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. And he says, have your mind renewed. It's really beautiful so that your mind can discern what the decider wants. What is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God? Does God have an agenda? Yes. Do you know what it is? Trick question. You're supposed to say yes and no. Okay, did God reveal some of his plan? Oh, yes, he did. Praise the Lord. Even from the beginning, Genesis 3, his plan was that he was going to send one born of a woman who would crush the one who was Satan, that, uh, that there would be redemption, that there would be relief, that there would be hope, that there would be communion restored. It's really interesting. That plan is the scarlet thread throughout all of Scripture. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when you realize that, that when, when you ask uh, when, when this question about what is a woman, uh, when you ask God the decider, the sovereign God, do women play into God's design? And the answer is absolutely yes. So if I take you real quick, I want to just highlight a few verses. Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. So if you had your Bibles and you turn over, you're going to find out that God definitely included some, some, some women. We already know that he made Eve, and that was wonderful. But did God quit with Eve? You know, she made a mistake, so he never made any more of them, right? Well, Adam, he blamed her. God, it's that woman you gave me. She messed it all up. He was, a, he was a poor husband. You don't want to blame your wife. It was his responsibility. We call that the federal headship. He should have taken better care. But in chapter 5, verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons. Does the text there end? What else did he do? God was doing something with these things called girls, these things called women, these things like little baby girls. I got my little baby granddaughter right there up front. She's loving this sermon. Um, hopefully she doesn't start crying on this one yet. Uh, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that God always had a design that there would be daughters brought into this world. And if you're a woman here today, you know what it means to be called to be a daughter. It is the daughter for all. You can't do any other dance around that. God made sons and he made daughters. Adam had a lot of them. 
fact, this is the answer to the question, where did Cain get his wife? It was one of his sisters. Now, that goes me to the next point, is that daughters is the status for all women. But some women also get the status of being a sister. Some get the status of being a wife. And even a few less get the status of being a pastor's wife. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> the reason I wanted to show you is, <laughs> is, is that if you go into Exodus 15, you're going to find out that Moses had a sister, and she was a good singer, Miriam. And uh, Mo Moses' sister, she, she had her bouts of jealousy, and she was frustrated here and there. But overall, she was a neat gal. She was the one that, when in Exodus 2, ended up uh, following the little bulrushes as they were floating down the river, and little Moses was inside. Miriam was there. Isn't it nice to have a sister? Some people get to have sisters, but not all. Then I talked about a wife. Not everybody gets to be a wife. Okay, this is something that, that some women get, maybe the majority of women do, but not all. If you look at Genesis 2.24, God was saying, and this is, he didn't pop people out of the womb married, so he ends up saying in chapter 2, verse 24, after he's made the woman, he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, this is a beautiful thing. Marriage is something that we should celebrate. The biblical marriage between a man and a woman is something that has been the building blocks of societies ever since Adam and Eve. It's really beautiful when you see how God's design, the decider has said this is his holy will. If I took you over to 1 Timothy 3, you can see where it says pastors, they need to be the husband of one wife. Hey, this doesn't mean that, uh, that part of the reason I just took you there is that even in the New Testament, the idea of a wife is not diminished or, or, uh, or trivialized. Um, but the, the pastor is supposed to be somebody that has a, a family in order. It's really kind of neat when you see how it all comes together. Each woman has a calling. All of you that are women are daughters. And that's why on Mother's Day, daughters ought to honor their moms. But every son also has a mom too. And that's why we want to honor Mother's Day today with that. Now, I'm telling you that the, the application today is not only from God the creator and God the decider, but also God the illustrator. So if you will join with me in Esther chapter 2, uh, turn over your Bibles there, you're going to see that I want to look at one of the, the biblical illustrations. There have been a lot of women in the Bible and on Mother's Day, typically you wouldn't get a sermon from Esther because Esther, was she a mom or not? I love it when someone can speak up with boldness and truth. Uh, we do not know. We do not know whether she ended up having children or not. What the text does tell us is that she was a woman and she was quite the woman. And that's why I want to highlight this for you as an illustration. God gives us an illustration of a woman so that we can take notice of it. Some of the details in Scripture may surprise you. Uh, first, when we find Esther is a woman with a special calling. Esther is, she has a, a heritage, she has a personhood, she has an upbringing, she has unique opportunities, and she has some fascinating duties, and she has some good accomplishments. So if you want to feel that women are diminished and they're insignificant, then why in the world is God even giving us a book of the Bible that's named after a woman? Maybe we just broke your paradigm. You see, some of what the culture says about Christianity is not what you think it is. 
Let's look to God, the illustrator. When I look here at this example of a woman, she is placed there for our eyes to behold, for our minds to grasp, for our hearts to be taught. There's something that we need to know about this gal that we often call and just only know her as Esther. But it's little Hadassah, this Jewish little girl. Now, what do we know about her heritage? Well, we know that she's from a Jewish background. She's been hiding it all through the storyline, but we know it because Mordecai is her relative, and he is one of those people that was taken captive when the Babylonian came in and took over Jerusalem. So we know that they were part of the people of God. She was from the tribe of Benjamin. So she understood that small little tribe that was, that was usually attached to the southern kingdom. Her culture, she grew up knowing some things. But what do we really know about her? We don't know a lot. We know that she was quite a bit younger than Mordecai. The way the Hebrew text is written is that they weren't equals in age. It was almost like he was uh, like a father figure to her. In some ways, he might even been a little bit older. The thing that we learn about her is that, that uh, she is a beautiful gal. Let me read it for you in the text. If you have your Bibles open, you'll be able to see it as clear as, as I would bring it up to you. Is that uh, uh, beginning in verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, can I say that from the pulpit? Are any of you going to accuse me of being sexist? No, how come we get away with this? Aren't men and women equal? Isn't equity what everybody's trying to get? That you're supposed to look just like each other? It's really interesting when the text of Scripture says, hey, she was pretty. She was really pretty. She was hot. <clears throat> She was lovely to look at. Let's stick with the scriptural text and the terms. She had a beautiful figure. <laughs> now, when I look at this DNA, uh, you can realize that there was something about Hadassah, that when she walked by, people looked. You know, here we live by a beach community, and that's all going to be coming up. I've often said to my kids and all is that when you notice beauty, that's not a bad thing. The thing to be concerned about is when you take the second look. Okay. Now, when I look at the scripture here, God has given her these particular traits. Now, some of us might covet those traits. Man, I'd like to be pretty. I'd like for people to notice me. Is that what you're thinking? See, be careful what you wish for because you see the 10th commandment says, don't covet her appearance. You got yours. You may not really like yours the best, and you may not be able to, you know, as a guy, I may never end up on the front of GQ magazine, and as a girl, you may never end up in the middle of some of those others. You know what I mean. I don't even have to say it. Praise God that we're often not on those things and being seduced by it. But God made this woman cute. She had a figure that was noticed even by the author of the text. And now all of us know about it. She had an interesting upbringing. Do you think she had an easy time of life just because she was cute? She probably dated the football team star, right? We don't know these things. What we know is that she was an orphan. On Mother's Day, she didn't get the chance to go to mom and say, Mom, I love you. Struggles. You see... 
This is part of the confusion that comes into our culture is people want you to be discontent with what you've been given. Be discontent and not satisfied with where you are. Instead, you want the grass that's greener somewhere else. It's scary. Her upbringing and her family setting wasn't so wonderful, but praise God, she wasn't abandoned. There was somebody that ended up taking her under wing, and that guy was Mordecai. Now, Esther's opportunities. Some of you might think, wow, this is so cool. She got to work in the palace. What a job! When you read into it a little bit more, she was basically imprisoned. She became part of the harem. They had gone around the whole kingdom and they found all the cute chicks and they uh, said, come on over. And if you look at it, at the beginning of the story, you're going to find that it was during this, the, uh, the fourth year of, of uh, Artaxerxes' reign when he was angry and all that. And now it's the seventh year. So at least three, three and a half years have gone by. Do you think she's traveled to the Grand Canyon? Do you think she's been able to take a ship across the world? See the Straits of Magellan? No, she's been totally trapped. And if you look at the particular thing here, once she was brought into this, this beauty contest, she was put into a regiment where they were going to make sure that she smelled good, looked good, no blemishes, all the oil of Olay that she could be smothered in. I mean, she had everything you could ever imagine. If you look at the text there, you can find in verse 8, uh, so the king's order... Um, so the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when she had been, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, Esther also was taken into that place. Verse nine. And the young woman, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. In other words, the guy taking care of the harem, uh, she ended up being noticed by him too. Oh, she's so cute, cute as a button. And he quickly provided her with all the cosmetics and her portions of food. <laughs> And he even gave her seven chosen young women from the king's palace to advance her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So basically, she got favor. Everywhere this girl goes, everybody's noticing her. Verse 10, Esther, Hadassah, had not made known to her people or, kin made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai, her caretaker, her father figure, said, don't share that news. But every day, verse 11, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to check on Hadassah to see what was happening to her. Now, when I, when I paint this picture for you, you can clearly see that there is some real beauty, that God has given us a story. The storyteller has communicated a message, and we're learning a lot about this message. Esther was a woman with a special calling. She had been given the looks and the beauty, but she had also been given, as I said, the dilemmas and the opportunity. Her calling in life was not to be a mom here. She wasn't supposed to be the one that was going to birth the Savior. That was given to some other lady. You know who she is, Mary, who was blessed among women to be able to bring the Savior into this world. Hadassah wasn't given that call. She was given the pretty face and probably straight teeth and whatever else that she had with the figure. She was given the attention of the men so that she got promoted and pushed to the front of the line. She had favoritism. Not because she deserved it, but because God kept giving it and giving it and giving it because she had a special calling in her life. 
She didn't quite understand it in the beginning, but the opportunity finally arose. And when you read about it a little bit later in chapter 4, you're going to find that Mordecai is one of the guys who has his eyes open. And I'll be preaching about Mordecai in the days to come because I would like us to be men like Mordecai. He is a great character. But Mordecai spotted some things going on, and one of the things he recognized was that there was some real dilemma. It wasn't that there was an election coming in the November date, but it was something was even worse. And he comes to his, to the person that he invested in, and he said, maybe, maybe God put you here for this reason. If you look there in chapter 4, you're going to run into the text pretty quick, I think in verse 16, where I find in verse 14, Esther 4, 14, this little girl, she's now grown up. She's been, she's been perfumed. She looks great. Her hair is never out of place. She would, won, we, she would win Miss America. She would win Miss Universe. She was getting the judges all giving her 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. In verse 14, for if you keep silent, Hadassah, at this time, God will skip over you. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you, but you and all your relatives are going to die. You'll perish. Who knows whether you have been brought to this place, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, why isn't God telling this to Moses? Why isn't he telling it to King David? Oh, why isn't he telling it to, uh, to, to Abraham? Well, by the way, he did do. But did you notice who he's telling this to? A little girl. A girl who is an orphan. A girl with a pretty smile. God paid attention to women. The details are there so that we can see how God worked it out, how his grace was extended. Her pretty looks didn't just make her go around and say, oh, I'm prettier than you. <laughs> no. God gave her that so that she would be in the right place at the right time to be able to meet with the king, to be able to accomplish God's purpose. And her purpose was a gospel-centered purpose, to preserve the lineage of Jesus. Wow. She never thought about that. But God used a woman. I can take you to a few other portions in Scripture as God the Illustrator has given to us. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, uh, Matthew 27 says that uh, there, are, there are many other women who are looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus. In other words, even in the Scriptures in the New Testament, we don't find that women were invisible. There were many of them. In fact, if you follow the Apostle Paul, you're going to find that probably he stayed alive because a lot of them were, being, uh, were taking care of his needs, whether it was Priscilla or whether it was some of the others, even Phoebe. Now, uh, that's Matthew, but, but there are some issues with, uh, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 11, if I could take you there to verse 3, you're going to find that in Hebrews 11, this is the hall of faith. You would think that the people that were champions, that stood up for God, were all men. Men, 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 right? Boy, pastor, that sounds so chauvinistic. If you go to Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, what do you find there? You're going to find, by faith, Rahab. 
By faith, Rahab. I mean, and you can go to some of the other ones if you go to verse 35 of Hebrews 11. You're going to find out, too, that there were some others. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Did you know that? Why didn't he say the men? Because there were some people that were women that actually had tremendous faith. And if you go to verse 37, you'll find out that the world was not even worthy of these women. Just like it wasn't worthy, worthy of some of the men. People that were willing to sacrifice their all for the kingdom of God. It's quite beautiful. Now, the Bible just doesn't tell us that women are wonderful. Of course, we all know that, right? Especially all the women in this room. All of you are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But if you look at the scriptures, you're going to also find that, there, that it tells us by the illustration that there's quite a few troubles with the women too. If you look at, uh, at, at Romans chapter 1, verse 24, and nobody wants to look there, but I'll do a quick peek so you can see. In Romans chapter 1, it says, Therefore God gave them up to their lusts to do impurity. They were dishonoring even their own physical bodies because they exchanged the truth about God for deception. They believed the lie. And then if you go to the next verse in verse 25, or 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonor for the women. The women. They messed up. They stopped doing the things that God had designed and they said, hey, we have an alternative plan how to, how to use our, our distinctiveness, our gifts, our talents. If you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, you can find that when Paul was writing to Timothy and, and trying to train that preacher boy, he said, it's not going to be so easy because there's some women. Older women, they need to be working with those younger women because those younger women, they can be trouble. So if you look there, there's a lot of instruction because 1 Corinthians 14 tells us some of the trouble that they got in. The church at Corinth had lots of problems, but in chapter 14 you can even find out. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women, the women were stirring up trouble. And he tells the pastors, hey, you need to stop this trouble being stirred up. They don't need to keep going on and creating more and more tension and confusion. Tell them to stop. And, and if they have this, if they really have questions, they ought to be asked outside of this assembly. They ought to be talking to their husbands. They ought to be talking to the leaders. It's really quite interesting. It's hard to read this kind of stuff because we're in 2022 and everybody has equity, right? The Bible does say that it's a dangerous thing when some of these women were doing some of the stuff in the church. And that's why you find it even in 2 Timothy, the same admonition. Now, I don't want to finish with just the negative. We're coming to the Lord's table, and this is not a sermon to put down ladies, because actually it's a sermon that puts them up. God made you. God made you with your own DNA. He gave you either the X chromosomes or the Y chromosomes, and I don't, I'm not the biologist to tell you all about all those details but I'm sure we can find out the exact details. You can Google it up. But God made you male or he made you female. And God put you in this earth at such a time as this to accomplish purposes that he has before ordained that you should be doing, Ephesians 2, verse 10, for you. That's why in conclusion, the gospel is pictured in this text. We have the illustration of Hadassah. Hadassah is looking at a scenario that fits with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a situation, and let me explain it like this, and you'll get it. All the people that were the good people, 
all the people that were God's people. They were the ones that were circumcised. They were the ones that were supposed to be the sons of Abraham. You know, they could sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them. Okay, because literally they were descendants of Abraham. And it's, and it's really kind of cool. But all the descendants of Abraham, men and women, were about to be canceled. And I'm not talking off Facebook or Twitter. On that specific day on the calendar, the, the King Artaxerxes had already been maneuvered, outflanked by Haman. And Haman comes and says, we need to wipe out these people because they're a detriment to your society. They're not filled with love. They do things that the people in the community don't like. They don't follow your laws. They're not rule keepers. They don't do like, like, like the, 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 the emergency powers tell you to do. They just want to do what they want to do. They claim that they have a God that's over you. Hey, there's nothing new under the sun. And Haman was able to influence the king. And he said, hey, I'll, I'll sweeten the deal. I'll even throw in some money into the, into the uh, treasury of the king. The king said, okay. And he took off his ring and he said, Haman, make it so. And they picked a date and it wasn't that far off into the future. And so the gospel scenario is this, that death was coming. Death was certain. Everybody that was God's people were going to die. There was no escape. The, the, all of the Medes and the Persians was absolute. <sighs> Have any of you ever felt that kind of despair? My goodness, I did. I felt some of the despair at the beginning of this year. With all the stuff going on in society with all the, the fear, with, with the statistics selling, telling us that people weren't going to come back to church after COVID, they had just loved to go to Zoom church. They could wear their pajamas. And they didn't have to observe the doors where you didn't have to keep, you know, you, you're not supposed to bring your coffee into the sanctuary. Ah, I could have my coffee at home. I could have my bagel too. It, 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 it was so weird at the beginning of this year. All the things. It was like there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And they're like, God, where are you taking us? Where are we going to end up? And I felt a little bit, I think, like Mordecai. But Mordecai ended up realizing that God wasn't done yet. And he remembered the good plan from Jeremiah 29, 11, that God is going to prosper. He's going to bring people back. He's going to accomplish his holy will. He's going to put a king on the throne that's going to be greater than Xerxes. And Mordecai believed it. There you have this picture of this little girl. She's, she's, she's just a plain girl, cute. And God takes her and puts her in the place to say, if I perish, I perish. She was going to give her life for just the possibility that there would be a pardon extended, that the king would raise his scepter and say, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm not going to bring down the wrath of our government against your people she was going to go and plead the case. And guess what? Most of the Jews didn't have a clue who she was. Most of them didn't even know that she was a Jew. She was a nobody trapped in a system, but placed there by God's divine design. And little Esther pictures, she says, okay, Mordecai, I'll do it. I'm going to have to pray, almost like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there another way? Is there another way? Is there another way? And then she said, I'm going to do it. This is why God put me here. And she steps up into the throne room. 
and mercy was extended. You see, you can see a little bit of the, of the way the mercy of God can be extended to us. But see, Esther, even though she was so cute, so good looking that you would take a second look, she could not save you from your sin. Jesus was the only one. Our condition is that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not that there's been a decree of an earthly king. There has been a decree from the sovereign above who said all who have sinned, who fall short of the glory of God, are going to perish. You're going to be cut off from my grace to a place called hell. And it's not going to end. It's not like it's going to run out of propane. It is always going to be burning. It is always going to be miserable because the wrath of God is poured out infinitely upon people who sin against an infinite God. Pastor, just get off of that part. No. John 3.16, for the wages of sin is that you will perish. You'll perish. But the greater gospel is this, that while we were in this condemned state, when we knew that it could happen at any moment, it wasn't a date on the calendar, but when we die, we're going to stand before the judgment seat and all of us who have sinned are going to be declared guilty. But while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, Christ stepped up through Gethsemane. He says, Father, is there any other way? And the Father's, Father God said, the covenant says that you have to take it. You have to drink the cup of my wrath. And Jesus was sweating the sweat drops of blood as he was already bearing in his body the, the, the condemnation that we deserved. And when he was hoisted up on that cursed tree, he still had his wits to tell people, Father, they don't know. They don't get it. They think that I ought to just come down off this tree and save everybody for the Romans. Wrong! He's on that tree to save you from God and his wrath upon you because you're undeserving. If you get that, then this sweet communion service is so sweet. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, paid it in full. It is finished. And he gave up the ghost. Jesus accomplished what Hadassah could never accomplish. Temporarily, she did get a stay so the people of God didn't die like, like King Ahasuerus had already decreed because of Haman's evil plot. But for us, God's mercy has been extended so that we have time now. We're still here. He hasn't blown the trumpet. The judgment day hasn't come. Do you know Christ? Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. The cup and the bread are ever-present reminders. For those of you that are Christians, it is for you. I'm going to pray right now, and as the musicians or the people take their place and the elders would come forward to the front row, I'd like you to prepare your hearts. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have been interested not only in men, but also in women. Lord, we realize that you decided that you would be the second Adam, not the second Eve. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you have redeemed the role of the women. That here on Mother's Day, we remember it, and it's seen in, in the book of 2 Timothy, that women would be saved through childbearing. Lord, it is not all about having children. It is about that it's through the birth of one. In Galatians 4, it clearly says that in the fullness of time, when God's alarm clock went off, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman birthed into this world lived under uh, under the decrees of this of this uh, of, of this society 
but it was for the cruel death of the cross. He was born to die. Lord, as we come to the table today, I pray that you might remove the blinders that we have and help us to see Jesus. Help us to hear his voice calling us to come to the table that's prepared for us. Lord, I pray that we might, might be able to recall some of the sweet time that we're spending with the Lord Jesus today, just like Adam and Eve did before the fall in the garden when you would commune with them. Lord, when sin entered into the world, it messed everything up. They were kicked out of the garden and they had to await for the time when you would finally send your son, your only begotten son, that whosoever is resting in what you've done would not perish but be able to drink of this communion cup and to partake of the sacrificial death of Christ. Lord, I thank you that you've set apart these common elements for the purposes that you have ordained to strengthen our faith and to help us to see that Jesus died, not because it was convenient, but because he loved us worthy enough to take our place. I thank you in Jesus' name.